Welcome to Important Not Important. My name is Quinn Emmett, and this is science for people who give a shit. We give you the tools you need to feel better and to fight for a better future for everyone. That includes the context, which is straight from the smartest people on Earth, and the action steps you can take to support them. Our guests are journalists and scientists, doctors, nurses, policymakers, farmers, engineers, CEOs, uh, astronauts. We even had a reverend once. This is your friendly reminder, folks, that you can send feedback to us uh, on Twitter at importantnotimp, or you can email us at questions at importantnotimportant.com. You can join uh, tens of thousands of other smart folks. You can subscribe to our free weekly newsletter at importantnotimportant.com. Uh, gives you all of the curated science news of the week in 10 minutes or less, some analysis, and of course, action steps. Uh, we've got some awesome merchandise you can pick up at importantnotimportant.com slash store. Highly recommend it. Folks, uh, this week's episode is, uh, we're trying to gonna, we're, we're gonna help you try to understand uh, carbon offsets, right? Uh, what they are, how they work and don't work, and what you can do to improve them, because Lord knows they need improving. Our guest, he is back. Uh, again, Akshat Rathi, he is a reporter at Bloomberg Green. There's really nobody better at this stuff uh, than he is. No one has covered it more than the folks there have. So I'm really excited to have him back to talk about it and uh, to try to help us understand how we can make the whole system work just a little bit better. So please enjoy this conversation with my man, Akshat Rafi. Our guest today, back for his second visit for some reason, is Akshat Rafi. And together we are going to try to get to the bottom of carbon offsets. Uh, what's real, what's not, what's working, what could work in the future. Uh, nobody has done a better job uh, or more thorough job covering this stuff than this gentleman over at Bloomberg Green. It is a relatively brand new industry uh, and it's already under fire. So I'm excited to dig into it here with my friend Akshat. Welcome. Welcome back. Hey, it's good to be here. Yeah, for sure, man. Uh, if you could, because you have migrated to the other side, uh, could you tell us real quick who you are, what you do and where you work? So I am a reporter with Bloomberg Green and I'm based in London. And at Bloomberg Green, we are sort of the climate vertical for all of Bloomberg News, which is the world's largest newsroom. You know, the climate team is is a small team within it, but uh, we get a lot of people from different bureaus and different beats contributing to it. And one of our obsessions, as you rightly put out, is offsets. Uh, and that's because that's become an obsession for the business world. Uh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> It, it definitely has. A lot of people just kind of willy-nilly throwing these things out there. Uh, it's uh, it's already caused a little bit of a stir. So uh, we want to help people understand it a little better, at least as far as we, we know where it is now, so that they can act uh, with some context, uh, with with informed action. So, Akshay, I, I believe we asked this last time to set the tone before we get this whole thing going, and maybe your answer has changed. But instead of saying, tell us your entire life story, I'd like to ask, why are you vital to the survival of the species? <laughs> I, I do remember answering this question last time. I, I don't I remember said, what I, your answer was, but I encourage you to I, be bold. I think my answer was, I don't think I matter. But uh, that doesn't mean what I do doesn't matter. And so uh, my entire goal with this uh, enterprise of being a journalist uh, is to try and inject 
uh, more rigor into the conversation. I, you know, trained as a as an engineer and a, and a scientist, and I just see a gap between what we know to be true facts are well understood theories and what people perceive them to be. And that gap is big in many places, is narrowing in others. Um, uh, and I love to be at the place where I can try and narrow it further. Well, we need you more than ever, certainly, because things are, I feel like it's it's a little naive to say they're more complex than ever because they were always this complex. We've just started pulling a lot of the strings um, uh, because we have to, uh, because enterprising folks have decided to, um, and we're realizing uh, that this, these these systems are are complicated. They're intertwined. Uh, they're going to be, uh, in some places, much more difficult to pull apart and to fix uh, or to rebuild uh, new. And in some places, we have a little more of a head start than we thought with things like the price of solar, for example. So, uh, yeah, you you are more valuable than ever, my friend. You're not allowed to go anywhere. So that's why I want to have this conversation, right? I want to talk about, uh, you've done more reporting on this, uh, technologies here in the marketplace and the fiascos behind them than anybody else. You're, you're engaged about it publicly uh, on Twitter. But like so much else of this, industry of which is part of this greater climate thing, it's it's become very ripe very quickly for this term that we all recognize as, as greenwashing, as we put it. And I think while a large part of what has been happening, I don't want to say it's been nefarious necessarily, but and, and not necessarily lazy or, or negligent in implementation, um, it's there have been some easy answers for folks that turned out art and companies and countries that are not uh, so easy. And so that has become very confusing for, for folks out there. They're trying to do the right thing for themselves, their family, their company, their investments, their industry, whatever. It's moving quickly. I want to try to help clarify where we are. And, and I can't think of anyone more better suited to do that. So let's set the lowest common denominator here for, for folks to understand, right? Um, companies and people are still just spewing emissions from scope one uh, all the way down to scope three. And so in the last few years, the folks have started buying these things called carbon offsets. And they are passes, essentially, to offset uh, their emissions. Um, uh, the idea being that the funding that you contribute towards those passes in exchange for those passes, sometimes it's a few hundred bucks, right, to offset your cross-country flight or less, or sometimes it's millions or billions to offset uh, big bank loans or theme parks or car manufacturing or, I mean, literally anything you can think of because everything we do causes these emissions. It, it theoretically goes towards these real-world projects that remove a matching volume of carbon from the atmosphere in one way or another. And sometimes those projects, well, for a long time, most often have included planting new trees or protecting existing trees and forests that may otherwise be threatened by industrial agriculture, right? Or it's uh, mangroves, or now it's something more technical, like these giant vacuums we've seen that can suck the carbon right out of the air. And so, of course, uh, entire secondary marketplaces have, have exploded to support 
the, these marketplaces and these exchanges and these these efforts to remove the carbon. And then we've seen these so-called uh, these net zero pledges uh, that are made for uh, 10 years from now or 20 or even better, 30. Those are my favorite. Um, and they are, there are credit cards now uh, that automatically offset your purchases. The, the whole thing, we, we've, humanity, we've gone down the stack quickly. There's a problem, though, with all of it, Akshat. And I wonder if you could tell the people what our main problem is. And I know it's a complicated one, but enlighten us here. Yeah, I think uh, it is a very complicated problem. So I think it helps to have a little bit of history. Offsets as an idea has been around for 30 years. Essentially, since we've sort of recognized climate change as a problem that we need to address. And in theory, they are a good idea. We do need to protect forests and grow forests because we have lost a, a, a shit ton of them. Uh, and so um, we do know that nature has this ability to store carbon through, you know, not just forests, but uh, through uh, species in the ocean as well. And, um, and then keep it there for a long, long time. Uh, what has happened in the last 30 years, though, is that we've attempted to try and make what nature provides as a service be measured and then be valued uh, in dollar terms. And that's, you know, in a way, applying capitalism to na nature's services. Um, and that's a very tricky thing to do. Um, an offset is, you know, in principle, a ton of carbon. Uh, uh, typically, when you buy an offset, you're buying one ton of car carbon. Uh, but that ton of carbon is not as fungible an asset as oil barrel is or as a, a ton of wheat is or as a roll of copper is. Um, because if you store a ton of carbon in the Californian forests where there is going to be a fire within the next five years or there's a high risk of a fire within the next five years, you're only storing it for five years. Yeah, if you're lucky if you're at storing this point. It, Right. And if you're going and protecting the Amazon forest and that forest is going to be around for 100 years, then you've stored it for 100 years. That's a qualitatively very different type of offset you've achieved. Um, even though you've bought a ton of carbon dioxide in both the cases, because you've stored one for much longer. Um, and as we know, the greenhouse gas problem is a cumulative problem. So the longer you can keep that carbon dioxide out of the atmosphere, the more value you are providing in terms of um, not heating the planet. Uh, so that's, I think, uh, to some extent being the problem, which is uh, we haven't really figured out measures and standards to and, and ways to monitor the carbon saving that may come from offsetting projects. And we can classify, I think, uh, offsetting projects, and then maybe the discussion could be structured on the types of offsets. So the weakest type of offset these days is one that um, was, uh, is called avoided emissions offset and comes from um, trying to fund renewable energy projects. So in the early 2000s, early 2010s even, solar and wind were more expensive than conventional fossil fuels. And so 
many developers built these projects and then created credits saying, okay, well, we're building this. Because we're building this, a coal power plant will not have to be built. And so because a coal power plant has not been built, there's a certain amount of theoretical emissions we've saved in the process. Can you pay us for that premium? Because this thing that we built is more expensive than the coal power plant is. And we would like to be able to make this a sustainable uh, um, project for us so that we don't incur losses for what is good for the world, but also is producing clean power. And so these credits have been floated and have been bought. And you can actually, at least as of two years ago, I, uh, you could go to the UN website and you could buy them for 20 cents a ton. That's it. For 20 cents a ton, you would be able to offset a theoretical avoided emissions from a coal power plant by buying a wind or solar credit. So that's one, one, one type of avoided emissions renewable energy credit. There's a second type of avoided emissions credit, which is probably the largest uh, pool of credits we have in the offset market. And that is avoiding deforestation. Um, and within that, there's a specific project called Red Plus, which was um, created through the UN climate process uh, through the COP meeting in Bali uh, in 2007 and then came into being in 2011 onwards. And the idea there is, again, as the UN process imagined it, it imagined it as a way for countries to trade credits. So Norway could buy a Red Plus project in Indonesia which would transfer or find a way to transfer wealth from a rich country to a poor country, government to government. Uh, and then Indonesia could use that money towards energy transition, uh, helping uh, develop its country, helping the poor uh, become richer. Moving their capital. Right. And the, in the process, Norway has uh, you know, countered some of its emissions by having Indonesian forests be protected, uh, which they would otherwise... And this is the, the avoided part and the theory part, which would have otherwise been cut because of industrial agriculture or just uh, because people need to survive and they need forests for those resources. These Red Plus projects have been uh, come, under, come under fire mainly because first, the governments couldn't agree on a mechanism, which is called Article 6, which we are still fighting about and are going to have conversations later this year in Glasgow when the meeting happens, the COP meeting. Um, and so governments aren't really trading these. Uh, you know, Norway has, in, in fact, done it. Uh, the example I talked about is a real example. Uh, but those are just countries doing it voluntarily right now. There are, there's no uh, official UN-backed mechanism to do it. Uh, what then happened, though, is because Red Plus is an idea that we should protect forests is, again, in theory, a good idea. Um, the voluntary carbon market came in and started to trade those credits. Um, and that's, uh, that's what you were talking about when companies want to purchase offsets against their emissions and negate, negate some of their emissions on their carbon balance sheet. And so a lot of these Red Plus avoided deforestation projects are being traded uh, for essentially, uh, you know, Shell, for example, has a program here, the oil company, where you can go to a Shell uh, gas station and you can buy gasoline. And then you can pay a certain extra, which would be an offset to neutralize the emissions from the gasoline you've just purchased because they've bought, uh, they, they're, they're protecting forests in Peru. And so that's your way of convincing 
your user to be guilt-free because, well, you've done some good somewhere else. Um, and yes, theoretically, right? Then there's a new class of offsets, and not new, I mean, it's been around, but a smaller class of offsets called afforestation, which is where you go and build forests. And theoretically, this is better than an avoided deforestation because you can actually measure in a way. You're not doing a baseline theory that we might have lost this much forest, and so we haven't now, and so we are saving some carbon. In this case, you're actually planting trees. And you can, if you do the work enough and you know the theory around the type of plant, the type of soil, the type of climate, uh, then you can, in theory, measure how much carbon was saved. And you could go and not just build forests around existing forests, but in places where there weren't forests or may have been forests hundreds of thousands of years ago, and you could build them now because you, you have the money through these projects to do. And they, these the this category of offsets now being called as carbon removal, because if you do it well, you're actually removing carbon. Whereas the previous offsets were avoided emissions offsets, where you're sure. avoiding, in theory, some emissions that would come from a from an activity. And that's where we've seen a little more of the controversy, at least recently with things like Nature Conservancy and Audubon right, and st- right, stuff like right. that. And, and we can right. get into it. I did want to just right. say... And then there's, sorry, there's the last one, yeah, go um, ahead. Which, go is, ahead. which is just technology offsets, which is the, the vacuum in the sky type of right. offset, where you can use some technological innovation. May that be direct air capture, these machines that capture carbon dioxide from the air, yeah. or you know, crushing minerals and putting it into an ocean or into the soil, sure. which would then capture CO2. Um, and they are much more expensive. But if you do them right, and we can know that we've done them right because we've used these technologies in the past, the carbon then goes deep underground, either in like a former oil and gas well or just underground, hundreds of thousands of meters underground, and then stay there for thousands of years. Right. So the the type of saving you get from that is very different qualitatively and quantitatively sure. from the other uh, offsets. So these are the four broad categories of mm-hmm. offsets. All of them have issues. Yeah, yeah. That that's kind of like the fundamental layer here. They're all kind of complicated um, for for a lot of different reasons. I did want to say just one thing. Again, I feel like our listeners particularly will know this, but if you don't, if you're new to it, or uh, if you're trying to figure this out. Um, just so you're aware, so uh, we're primarily in these discussions and, and today focused on CO2. Um, we, obviously, methane is this big issue. We're able to actually measure that uh, much more than we can. We can see from the sky when these plumes happen. Methane goes away in about 10 years. We're not really worried about pulling that out. That's one of those things we just need to just do less of in general, because while it's much more powerful than CO2 in the moment, uh, we don't need to worry as much about that getting stuck up there and removed. But CO2 in in general, just so, again, everyone's on the same page, when emissions, uh, when we release emissions, essentially about 45%, almost half of that results in long-term increases in atmospheric CO2. Uh, Right now, uh, and sort of historically, about 30% of that uh, goes into land-based sinks. So that could be, again, forests and trees and soils. And about, uh, what, 25% or so, I think, Akshat, is ocean-based. And again, that's deep oceans, that's that's mangroves, that's kelp, and things like that. Um, so that's the, sort of the current status. And again, of the, of the mechanisms that Akshat described, um, a lot of that was 
the land-based versions. And the reason, well, um, among the many reasons the clock is ticking faster and and cl- closer to the final bell is that some of those really aren't working anymore the way that they have in the past. Um, the, of course, there's there's far far less forests. The ocean has has sucked up an enormous amount of of CO two and and can only do so much and is warming itself. So, um, that, yeah, again, I, just go ahead. I would say we don't. I mean, the carbon cycle is complicated. It you know, the amount of carbon that goes into the atmosphere and comes down has been happening naturally for quite some time. The thing that, of course, is the problem is we are adding a new type of carbon, which is fossil fuels, which have been in the ground for a while and then burning and putting it into the atmosphere. We don't need to really worry about the carbon cycle in a way because a ton of carbon dioxide we put into the atmosphere is really the impact. Because when we draw that carb- a ton of that carbon dioxide from the atmosphere, the sinks that took uh, away the half you were talking about, whether they be land or ocean, will actually release them. So in the process of the ocean taking up uh, um, carbon dioxide, it is acidifying. When we take that carbon dioxide back from the atmosphere, that ocean will start to be less acidic and go back to the sort of long normal that we've had during uh, the Holocene, the the period, the few hundred thousand years that we've been here on the planet. So we should not worry about it in a way. A ton of carbon we put into the atmosphere, well, that's our responsibility. All of that ton is our responsibility. Yeah, and there have been studies recently, and again, it's, you know, there's just been incredible people working on this thing, and and, and we're sort of at the beginning of, of, of actually being able to understand that, yes, like, the, the quicker we move on these things, the, the quicker those areas will rebound. I mean, it takes forever to grow trees, and replacing something like the Amazon can 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 take quite a while. But at the same, and of course, they only storm for a hundred years. But at least with the ocean, you know, we can make changes that have big effects. And and the quicker we start doing these things, the quicker they can start rebounding. So, I, I feel like we could spend six hours digging into each of those for sure. I do want to talk about. I guess let's let's dig into sort of the bigger items that I think folks have seen and said, "Well, holy shit! If that's not working, then what is?" Let's talk about what's happened with the protecting existing forests issue, whether that's the enormous forest Russia wants to measure and protect or what happened with Nature Conservancy and all the money that Audubon raked in. Can you explain to everybody, I guess, I'm, I, I, I try to assume good intentions in most places, but it's getting harder and harder in this job. Um, if you can explain why, why those projects happened the way they did and what went wrong, and I guess what was inevitable about them going wrong? Yeah, so there's no inevitability for them to having gone wrong. They have gone wrong, and they are different projects um, altogether, so each of them have different issues. But what we've seen in some of the projects, so for example, in California, is that because these projects are based on the theory of avoiding emissions, you have to first draw a baseline, uh, which is based on work that you would do, assuming that had you not paid for these offsets, what would have happened to these forests in theory? That in itself is an assumption you're making based on lots of things, but it is at the end an assumption. And if you change that a little bit, you could, the amount of emissions the credits you would generate could vary quite a bit. So 
let's just assume that before you came into this Californian forest, the deforestation rate was 1% per annum, right? And you've seen that for the last 20 years. Now you'd say, okay, well, that's happened for the last 20 years, which means it'll happen for the next 20 years. So I'm going to assume that the deforestation rate is 1%. Now, because you've paid me money, I'm going to apply, uh, deploy some rangers, private rangers, to make sure that deforestation rates go down. And so now I've cut that deforestation rate to 0.5%, which in theory, you're still losing forests, but you're not losing as many as what we thought in theory you would lose. And that 0.5% that we think we've saved is the emissions that you're paying for. Now, that's all in theory, right? And that's very easy to manipulate, especially if it's not California, it's happening in Zimbabwe where there are nobody uh, to look at what actually happens, whether these theoretical baselines were in fact right. The other problem is, even if your theory of the baseline was right, like deforestation would have continued irrespective. Well, when you come in and you help the people in those regions to become more sustainable through these money projects that you are able to build because of the offset money, you know, you go and tell them about sustainable agriculture, you go and build biogas digesters for them so that they don't have to burn uh, firewood. Uh, that changes their ability to uh, be more sustainable, which means once you've done those projects, shouldn't your baseline change because they've become more sustainable now? So should uh, are you really avoiding more deforestation, at least as much as you were before you came in and did this project? You can't be sure about that. So this is the problem with measuring these avoided emissions projects. Um, they are again, just to stress, are necessary in many places. But should voluntary carbon markets be the thing that should fund them? That is unclear. Shouldn't it be governments? And you know, shouldn't it be the US paying the Zimbabwe government to be able to protect a forest? Uh, because you know the US has been emitting historically way more emissions than Zimbabwe ever has or will ever in its lifetime. Yeah, I definitely want to get into that as well. <laughs> Yeah, and I mean, it seems like there's this, again, and it doesn't apply everywhere, but there are these issues where the question was like, well, wait, wasn't this forest protected anyways? Or wasn't the funding already there to protect this forest anyways? Was it ever actually, at least for now, under threat? And is that actually preventing, you know, reducing emissions? Are we actually making any progress there? You know, was this sort of a house of cards? Yeah, This, and so this my, particular project, at least. Yes, and my, my colleague Ben Elgin, who's written those stories for Bloomberg Green, uh, you know, went and saw those projects. And in some cases, those were entirely protected forests that were bought by Nature Conservancy as a way to protect them because that's what their membership pays them to do, which then they monetize by saying, oh, actually, there was going to be deforestation here, but we are protecting them now. Even though we did say when we bought them that we will protect them, but because now we're really protecting them. Yeah, now we're really protecting them. Right. Yeah. And the problem is, is you saw, I mean, again, this wasn't just like you and I buying off plane flights. This was literally like Disney and, and JP Morgan, people throwing millions of dollars at these at these projects and going like, well, well, hold on. And now, I mean, again, we'll, we'll put it in the show notes. Um, and we've, we've talked about it in the newsletter quite a bit, but the links to those investigations, cause they are pretty tremendous and they're necessary. Like we have to, 
this isn't an industry that we can let slide for 50 years like we have everything else we make. I mean, we have to get this right quickly. And we're, we're starting to. So one thing that companies that are, uh, sorry, companies that are setting these net zero goals can do if you are somebody who works for one of those companies is that you can be a little more science-based in your approach. So there's an, there's an organization called the Science-Based Targets Initiative, which works with companies to come up with plans that are actually reducing emissions. And one of the things that they do is, well, it's great you have a net zero plan in 2050, but for now, for a science-based target, what we need is a 2025 plan and a 2030 plan. And in those 2025 and 2030 plans, science-based targets does not allow you to use offsets because the immediate thing you should be doing is to reduce emissions. And so their plans, once they put their stamp of approval on it, only comes after you have told them that you're going to reduce emissions. Now, they are in conversations that there would be things that you really cannot cut. You know, business air travel, for example, is a thing that in the, even in 2050, we are likely to have a lot of fossil fuels being used for. And, you know, there might be inventions like hydrogen planes and electric planes, but they may not cover all use cases, especially long distance. And so they may allow the use of offsets for those cases, but they are further downfield. And so currently there is a task force that's been created by these finance, uh, financial uh, minds. Uh, Mark Carney, who's from Bank of England, uh, chief and uh, Standard Chartered CEO Bill Winters. And some of the things that they are trying to do is to try and create a carbon market because they think these offsets are necessary. But they're addressing essentially the market issues, which is how should a legal contract work? Is there enough liquidity in the market? What do you need to do to have enough, enough liquidity in the market? But they're not really addressing what are the issues we are talking about, which is whether the asset itself is doing the job it should. And uh, whether the offset that's being sold on these markets should be used for a science-based target or just for greenwashing. Right. There's a lot to lot to figure out, a lot to hash out here. And I understand the, the rush to try to establish these markets and, and, and do it because when, when someone comes in uh, like a, a watershed, for example, you know, a company that really wouldn't exist if every company and industry in the world didn't have to make these 2025, 2030 targets that, look, I empathize with. I've worked, I, I worked at Disney. I worked at the Financial Times. They make, they print on paper. Um, you know, especially when you look at things that are, uh, you know, you look at, look at Ikea. When someone says, hey, listen, Akshat, you're the guy at Ikea. We need you to look at all the scope three emissions. It's like, I, are you kidding me? Like, no, thank you. I'm like, like I, I can't, it's, it's a nightmare. But it is necessary. And, and again, if we're going to put down another fundamental tenet here, the number one thing that has to happen is to reduce emissions. And that's all the way down your chain. And some companies are going to have that easier and some are going to have it more difficult. And, and, but we have to expose these things. And, and I know you guys have talked a lot about, for example, and we, we don't have to go all the way down this road, is you know, we talk about, oh, we have to electrify every building because you know, buildings have all these issues. And, and then Bloomberg says, well, actually, the real reason uh, uh, banks have so many emissions is because of these incredible loans, right? It was just some insane multiplier of how much more they're putting out from these. And, and you have to find ways to reduce those and to reduce the money you're putting into it because we've put just some incredible amount of money into fossil fuel projects since 
the Paris Agreement, right? So we have to tackle those first. And so you see companies like Watershed coming along and saying like, yes, look, you we can talk about the net zero part of it. We can talk about your offsets, but these are the things we have to do and you have to analyze your business from top to bottom. Let's talk though for a moment about this week. You know, we try to make these conversations a little more evergreen, but at this point, uh, this is a specific one I want people to feel informed. John Kerry has been been bouncing around the world, um, as is his job as this special climate and envoy. And he caught a lot of flack because he m- mumbled his way through a question that half of the U.S.'s required emissions cup, uh, cuts will need to come from technology that doesn't exist yet. And that's not quite right, right? The technology, or at least the fundamental pieces of this tech, are there. It works. We can actually suck carbon out of the air. These vacuums are are real. But we are a very long way from doing so and a very large amount of money away from doing so at the scale required to actually put a dent in what we have in what we have done. And so, you know, we've got these disputes over public and even private funding, whether they should go into R&D and scaling for these tech-driven carbon removal options or some of these outlandish, but seemingly really incredible. And I know you've talked about some of these sequestration and transformation into a variety of useful outputs, rocks, biofuels. But I, I, maybe it's because I haven't been in this thing as long as some of these folks who've been fighting it for 25 years. So I understand where they've been scarred by inaction. And now they're going like, look, we can't do this fanciful stuff. We have to do X and Y now. But this is kind of where we were on solar a couple decades ago. I mean... A, the clock's ticking much faster now, but I mean, even like you were saying, 10 years ago, the price of solar was, was I, I mean, the project where it was 10 years ago and the projections from where it would be today are just so far off. And we always laugh at the IEA because they were, you know, they're always like so far behind and they're so, so conservative in their estimates, but it's, it's incredible. And now solar, which we've really honestly only begun to scale is the, in most places, the cheapest energy of all time. And that's not saying that's where this carbon removal tech is going to go. But if we don't put the money into it now, you can't just look up in 20 years and go, okay, now we can start to try to suck things out of the atmosphere, right? And again, like you said, trees only store carbon for about 100 years if we don't cut them down in the, or they don't burn down in the first place. So yeah. let's talk about some of those technological solutions. And then I would actually love to talk about some of the innovative business-driven efforts like what Stripe is doing behind them, if we could get yeah. to that. So the technology options are, again, many, and that's why it'd be worth categorizing them. Please, do it. The most controversial one is called BECCS, or BECS, and that is Bioenergy and Carbon Capture and Storage. And, and it's controversial because the idea is to burn biomass, probably from a forest, assume that in the process that the forest grew, you captured carbon in those trees, so in theory, burning that tree is carbon neutral, I'm saying in theory. Uh, and then you capture the emissions from that power plant and you bury it underground, which then means you've got negative emissions. So in theory, because of this chain, you have actually taken carbon dioxide from the air. Rather than having these vacuum cleaners, you've actually done it through trees, which we know are uh, things that can capture carbon dioxide. Now, it's controversial because if we rely too heavily on it, then we might end up using 
bioenergy land for bioenergy, which may compete with agricultural land. And, you know, we are also in a place where the population will continue to grow for the next few decades before it plateaus. And so, uh, and it'll get richer, which means they'll consume more calories. Uh, and, and so you're in this place where there might be food uh, and people conflict against climate. So that's one, which is uh, the most controversial one. Then there's direct air capture, which are these vacuum cleaners. And they are also, in theory, quite simple to understand. You know, we do have air pollution cleaners in, in homes because of, of, you know, either it's in California wildfires or in Delhi, just uh, fossil fuel pollution. And so, you know, those capture particles and they have, they are particles you can probably not see, but they are physical particles you can capture in filters. The carbon dioxide capture, direct air capture, is essentially the chemical version of that, where you can't see the gas. It's some, it's you know, it's 400 parts per million of molecules in the in the air. Uh, but if you uh, have uh, the right chemical, it acts like a magnet um, to ion filings and captures the CO2, and then you can compress it. You can concentrate it, compress it, and put it down into the ground. Now. We have, you know, at least three companies. There are more, uh, f- five or six smaller ones that are building these technologies, but they're very expensive. Uh, they cost six hundred dollars a ton. You know, we talked about the renewable energy offset credit being twenty cent a ton. So the difference is massive. So when you go in an exchange, why would you buy uh, a six hundred dollar a ton credit when you can buy a twenty cent a cr- ton credit and get the same benefit, right? So that's one. Then there are um, more uh, sort of a, a in between nature and uh, technology. There's something called biochar, where you take a piece of wood, you burn it in uh, absence of oxygen, and what you get is a material that is highly porous. And then you can put it in soil, and it becomes a place for bacteria to to concentrate and and in process keeps more carbon in the ground in agriculture, helps improve soil health, helps improve agricultural productivity. So there are co-benefits that come along with it. There is a technology where you do mineral carbon capture. So you take a particular type of mineral, uh, which uh, would in nature, just through processes that happen on, on geological scale, would get exposed to the atmosphere, would capture carbon dioxide. In, instead, you take them, you crush them, you give them a lot more surface area, and get them to capture carbon dioxide sooner. Uh, and you could do that by actually dumping them in the ocean, because in the ocean, the concentration of CO2 is much, much higher than in the air. Plus, once it's in water, the contact is higher with the, with the, with the mineral. And so you could reduce, you could capture carbon dioxide that way. Now, the problem is you have to do large-scale studies to be sure that that works and to, be know, to know verifiably that that's the amount of carbon that's trapped which is not easy, uh, whereas with direct air capture, once you capture some CO2, you know how much you've captured and how much you're injecting in the ground. So it's a very verifiable amount. You can use the same minerals and and then put them on on agricultural land where you reduce what is the acidity of the soil. And in the process of reducing the acidity of the soil, eventually when that reaches the ocean, it captures carbon dioxide. So you're doing this very long multi-step thing uh, but again, studies are underway. They take years before we know whether this can work. 
Um, so those are some of the technological options that we have. And, you know, it's not an exhaustive list. There are other technologies that keep coming in how you could capture carbon dioxide from the air, essentially. And, and the reason we are also talking about them to some extent is, let's forget all the corporate um, climate plans and, and all the net zero plans. Just to be able to hit the 1.5 degrees Celsius threshold, the international uh, body, uh, the international, the intergovernmental panel on climate change says we will need negative emissions. So we will need, you know, forests and we will need some BECs and we'll need some direct air capture and a combination of that uh, to be able to lower what we've already put into the atmosphere if we want to keep warming to 1.5 degrees Celsius. Right. And that's, I think the part that's the uncomfortable thing to talk about for, for some of these folks that have been doing it for so long is just acknowledging that like we also have to do these things because even if everyone started doing the work to reduce right now, we're just not going to get to 1.5 uh, anywhere near on the timescale that, that, we, that we need to. These things are required, and we have to acknowledge that the nature-based solutions, uh, the, the pure, m- most purely nature-based solutions, are great, but they are they are they are limited uh, in in a number of ways. Again, like some of the you know some of the greatest uh, oldest forests on Earth are in the quote unquote uh, you know in the tundra and the permafrost, which is not so perma anymore. They're in these California forests, which are under threat like today. They are in uh, you know the Amazon, which uh, doesn't exactly uh, have have very long at the rate. Well, that guy's still in charge down there. You know, and again, they only storm for a hundred years. We've got these wonderful options like mangroves and kelps, but those two are these nascent industries that are that are that are that have you know barely any backing on the scale that we need to do the things they need to do. And so, I'm just such a firm believer in this kitchen sink approach. But I'm also trying to, you know, understand that to do these things at scale, it's going to require both old school institutional ways of doing it, like. Carbon 180s plan. They, I'm not sure if you saw what they put forward to the U.S. Congress, saying like, "Look, in the next three years, like this is what the power of the U.S. federal government, the largest checkbook on earth, can do to build, uh, you know, a, at least a, a foundational platform for carbon removal." Right? We've we've got to get these costs down. We've got to plow money into R and D. We've got to raise demand. We've got to actually figure out what some regulations are in measurement. We've got to build the infrastructure for this thing. We've got to build guidelines for measuring. And there's private options that can start to do this, um, but we have to support them. And so I also love what places like uh, Stripe are doing. I mean, there aren't there aren't many firms like Stripe on the entire planet. That's what makes them so unique, right? Is uh, folks, if you're not familiar. If you've ever paid for anything on the internet in the past five years, there's like a 95% chance that the infrastructure to handle that payment was from a company called Stripe, started by a couple Irish brothers uh, that have just basically taken over the that entire platform. And essentially what they've done, and, and Aksha, please correct me here, and I know they have another day coming up where they're going to explain this stuff. We'll put it in the show notes. Um, they've essentially said... If you are a shop owner that uses Stripe, you can, with two clicks, enable uh, a percentage of your proceeds, which you can decide to go towards uh, carbon removal projects that they are supporting and putting the scale of the Internet's purchasing power behind to, again, to try to put money into that R&D, but to also try to reduce the costs of 
doing this technological work. Can you talk a little bit yeah. more about that endeavor? Because it is so unique and it is, again, one of these out-of-the-box ideas we're going to have to use to make this happen. Yeah, and it's not, uh, luckily, it's not unique anymore in the sense that other, others have joined in. Uh, you know, after Stripe uh, came up with this plan, we've seen Microsoft come up with its own plan, Shopify join uh, Stripe's plan, and and then others are 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 looking to join as well. And the reason why Stripe is doing it, I've spoken to uh, the climate guy, Ryan Orbuk, um, is that they they see all the problems with the nature-based offsets that we've looked at, and they and they think, well, great, you know, there's already a ton of people who want to do the right thing over there. We just don't see that it's going to provide the kind of carbon impact that we believe we can have. And we also not seeing governments step up and address the negative emissions technologies um, research problem that exists. And, and so they've stepped in and, and they've created a market for uh, these technology-based ne- negative emissions in a way that is um, quite for- forward-looking. There is a, there's an idea which, you know, Bill Gates has used the word green premium. Others have come up with sort of the, the gap between what is a, a, a fossil-based technology and what is a clean technology. And you can, as governments, lower their costs by doing research or, or by ask, paying, subsidizing the deployment of these technologies. Or you can, as a consumer base, which is much bigger than governments can ever be because it's all of us, uh, create demand for these and, and pay the premium so that every time you pay the premium, there is a these technologies get better, they become cheaper, just as we've seen with solar and wind and batteries and electric cars. And the nice thing about the Stripe program, but also the Microsoft program, is that they're doing it very transparently. So uh, once they have these uh, you know, payment options to others to, to pay a certain amount um, for carbon removal, that goes into a pot. And then that from that pot, people can bid, Here, uh, here's this technology I use. Uh, there's a, an industry... There's an interesting uh, startup in Silicon Valley called Charm Industrial, which essentially takes biomass, converts it into essentially oil. I mean, it's a carbon goo and then just sinks it into the ground instead of, you know, first burning it and producing carbon dioxide, then catching a gas, which is much harder. And so Charm can just go to Strive and say, look, we have this technology. We need $400 per ton and we'll give you this much by this date. And Stripe thinks, okay, this is a technology worth uh, worth supporting, so we will buy a certain portion of our large pot for this technology, and they'll do so for many, many projects. Um, and then at this day that they're going to have, they'll have these project people or these technology startups come and talk about their technology. And it sort of, in a way, has a side benefit of making people who are contributing the, to these projects really know what they're doing, right? When you buy this offset from a Zimbabwe forest, you don't really get to speak to the people in Zimbabwe, who are benefiting from it, uh, but in this case you can, and, and that's an that's an interesting side benefit from the purchase. Um, so it's it's a trend that is there. How how much can it scale is a question because you know Stripe is large, Microsoft is large, Shopify is large. They have the ability to employ you know a, a small team who can do the work and pay them. Um, not every company will be able to do it, and so that's why. Things like this Kani task force are trying to create a market where you can, if you do the right work, just go and buy a product 
like you would go and buy a product in Whole Foods. But without addressing all the issues we've talked about, very hard to see how that happens. Yeah, and this is just, I mean, why... I just have frustrations. I empathize with, but I have frustrations with the, we need to do this instead of this, or we need, this isn't going to work. We have to do this, or this doesn't work yet. We need to do the things we've relied upon. Um, we're in a place where, where the, the option is doing, doing all of it and using all these tools that are at our disposal. And the good thing is it's 2021. And there are some tools that are at our disposal that, that frankly, weren't available even 10 years ago. I mean, we, again, we talk about solar and we talk about wind. We can talk about the next evolution of, of solar panels. We can talk about the vacuums out of the sky. But we've also got things like, you know, what we're able to do with satellite measurement now, you know, not just looking at, I mean, we couldn't do this three years ago, but tra- tracking methane clouds in real time and saying like, hey, you, like you can't, you can't do that anymore, right? But that also helps us look at these massive, in the US, the factory farming and, and identifying like, what does that really do? I mean, it's methane, which is so much worse, but we also know like, boy, those are easy wins, right? That's low hanging fruit. You eliminate that and that removes those quickly. But we're also able to do things like, um, and correct me if I'm pronouncing wrong, is it, is it Pacama, uh, Pachama? What they're building now, they're building the whole vertical Right, they, I think they just raised a bunch of money to build the whole tech stack from satellite measurement of forestry tr- projects to building an offset marketplace themselves. But trying to do it again, like you said, if you 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 want to go buy from this Zimbabwe forest, like we, we, you don't have a lot of contact there to know that what you're doing isn't uh, you know a ghost essentially. Um, and then there's options like green hydrogen. There's options which again wasn't something even we could consider 10 years ago. We're looking at long-duration storage and how much battery prices have come down and trying to build solid-state batteries where we can store things for longer. Yeah, I mean, the other thing that happened this week, which also is something we should recognize is, um, you know, the International Energy Agency came out with this report, which was the point you were making about Kerry's statement where they said half the reductions that will come will come from technologies, yet it pilot scale are not being demonstrated. Um, and so what there is a real gap and I, I, uh, I you know, it's a fascinating topic to, to explore on its own, but there's a gap between the energy industry and the climate industry or the energy world and the climate world. And that gap exists for many reasons because they've never talked to each other in a way, uh, but also because there, you haven't had many people go from one to the other. Uh, you know, climate world is growing much more quickly. The energy world is an old age, age old uh, industry that's existed. But what we, what we don't appreciate is, you know, the climate world is shouting, look, we know these damages are coming. They're coming fast. And fast means real fast. Um, right. I was born in 1987, which was the year when 350 parts per million was broken, which is considered by many scientists as the, the threshold for a stable climate, right? And in the 30-odd years that we've, I've been alive since, you know, we are now at 420 parts per million. And there's less than 30 years out to 2050 uh, from today. So the work that we have to do has to happen in our lifetime in the next 30 years. Most of us will still be around, not retired. Whereas the energy industry operates at very different timescales. When you build a nuclear power plant, it lasts 80 years. When you build a coal power plant, it lasts 40 years. And so you have to think of it as a tanker that needs to be turned around. And yes, there isn't progress 
as much as we would like, but the pressure is building and we need to keep the pressure building while realizing that it's going to take time to turn the energy system around. Um, and so the way we can turn it around is through technology, is through deployment, is through policy, is through pressure, is through activism. And all those things will be needed. Your energies are better spent pushing those things forward rather than fighting against one of them by saying, no, this R&D is not needed. No, this technology is not needed. There's way more you can do with your activism that supports each of those pillars rather than opposes any one of them. And, and you're right. And and I did, uh, I you know, you, your, your tweet about that the other day, definitely, it's one of those things I'm like, yeah, but then also I kind of like stare at a wall in a corner for a while going like, it's, it's so much worse than so many people are willing to acknowledge uh, on the energy side. But at the same time, again, like you said, these, these energy ships to turn it around are, are complicated um, and not just moving away from some of these, these, you know, from the older sources, which the IEA was like, look, no, that's <laughs> this week. They're like, look, no more. Like, that's it. N- not, nothing new. But uh, th- that's not just putting solar panels on people's houses. I mean, if you want to go read, I know, I know he's in Bloomberg Green, but like if you read David Roberts work on transmission, for example, like everything he did for transmission, like it's, it's the things we can do are exciting, but boy, are they complicated, especially when you're talking about right of way and eminent domain and how to build lines and uh, utilities fighting each other. Like it, it is, it is entirely complicated. You look at what happened to Texas, like part of that was by choice because of what the decisions Texas has made over the past 25 years, 10 years, but they're not connected to the U.S. grid. Like to do that is not a simple thing to do, right? We can't just build panels and ship it into Texas. We had, there's the, 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 the options here are are complicated, but we have to do them on every front. And that's why it does require smaller private works like Patrima, but also bigger ones like Stripe or Microsoft. Like if we've got $2 trillion companies, then you need to see companies like Apple, which they seem to be doing, doing that scale and scope of work to not only take care of their scope one and scope two stuff, but scope three and even going further. I mean, there there is a tendency that humans have. It's just a very human tendency to want to simplify things, to have one thing that would solve a problem. But we just have to recognize that's not the case with climate. Climate, you will never have one thing that will solve the problem. It's too big, too complicated. But But what happens is then there's the tendency of like, once you start thinking about these things, and we've been talking about it for almost an hour, if it feels it's too complicated, there are too many things happening. How can we ever do these things? And that also, I think, is a wrong position to end up in. We can say like inertia is one force that is stopping much of the change from happening, but it's just one force, right? There are so many others. You, you know, you have to, if inertia is a problem or friction is a problem, you can you know, smooth the path, you can show a new path. You, you, there are ways in which you can do things that are very, very manageable because the amount of people who are interested in this has also grown really, really rapidly. And, you know, systemic change will come from lots of people participating with full energy and holding the people who have more power than us normal individuals uh, to keep with those changes uh, and keep at those changes um, because it's just, it is the, it is the work of our lifetime. It's not going to happen tomorrow. It's not going to happen next year. And 
that doesn't mean we take it easy, but uh, it just means we've got our work cut out for us. We do. And you are, uh, I think, thankfully for the world, a little bit younger than I am. Not not too much, but I mean, I, I feel like some days, do you remember Indiana Jones and the Holy Grail when, when he finally meets the Grail Knight at the end and the guy just falls over? Like, that's how I feel at the end of most days. So I, I hope you feel differently. But I did look up and I've been thinking about this. It's the work of our lifetime thing because I will be 67, 68 in 2050 which is when some of these net zero pledges are from from these you know these banks and these fossil fuel companies and 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 you just go oh that is like my my lifetime that's my working lifetime and that's hopefully a long time but it's not and it's going to fly by and and the work we have to do over that time starting now and in 5 years and in 10 years and why we have to measure those over time has to be impactful along the way and so like you said it, it's not one or the other but and th- and this is the thing we talk about, and and you know, for, for what we do here is not just climate; it's it's public health; it's a bunch of different things. People say, you know, it's look, it's very easy to listen to a conversation about climate or carbon offsets or whatever, and go, Jesus Christ, Akshat, uh, uh, then then what can I do? And my answer is always, and it seems simple, but it's it tends to be a conversation starter in one respect or another. Is like, okay, well, Akshat, what can you do? You know, what is what is your thing? And and you've gone to Bloomberg, and again, you guys are. Are, are building this magnificent thing there. It, it truly is exceptional work that you guys do. And there's other places like it, not too many, but there's other places like it. But there's there's things you can do. You know, you can work in policymaking. You can work on these technologies. If you are an investor, you can work in these things. But as everything we try to uh, put out here, I, I, I urge you to work, do the work to work on something that is verifiable because we don't have time to waste on things that aren't. That doesn't mean don't work on this nascent technology, but but go down a road, apply yourself to something that is going to have and we can measure is going to have a specific impact in some way from journalism uh, down to the, you know, burying carbon in the ground. There is an essay called I, Pencil, which I would urge everybody to read. It's just okay. a wonderful, wonderful essay and you should link to it in, yeah, in the show 100%. notes. It's very easy to find. It essentially takes you on a journey of how a pencil is made and what it tells you is you as a human have used pencils for a very long time, but you have no idea, absolutely no idea of how a pencil is actually made. And that is a, uh, a tragedy because uh, the very world in which we live and um, benefit from is a world that is actually alien to us if we think a little bit about it. And climate in a way you know, is a big problem, but if you think about the solutions to, to climate change, they are about changing the world around us and they are about becoming familiar with the unfamiliar. Uh, you know, how is cement made and how is steel made and where do you mine aluminum from and, you know, what goes inside a battery? Uh, those are things that are products and, and benefits you are uh taking all the time, but you don't know them. And in the process of knowing them, if you can change them and clean them up, it's a, it's an, it's a fascinating opportunity to come to see our own world in a new light. And so climate change feels like an overwhelming problem, but it's also a way to connect with the planet in a way we have never connected before. Um, and that, I think, as an exercise, even if we fail to meet the, the ambitious targets we've set, 
is an exercise that will improve civilization. It will. And, and that is the thing I do try to pass to people who are, you know, understandably uh, wrought with despair at times. And I think we can all get there is there's also this enormous opportunity. I mean, we say it is one opportunity, but it is, it's, it's manifold, right? It is, I mean, we've never seen a systemic opportunity like we have to electrify everything, period. You know, every automobile, every ship, every car, every plane, uh, if we can, every building. There's never been anything like that. And and that is not just by electric cars. I mean, what goes into that and the, the just transitions that are required and the search for the next, uh, you know, lithium metal batteries or solid state or whatever it might be to uh, these charging technologies and being able to scale those. What goes into it is enormous and what we can do and improve. I mean, you look at in the U.S., so many of the the deaths where we just tragically but completely predictably over-indexed on deaths to Black Americans and Brown Americans and, and Native Americans were because of these pre-existing cardiopulmonary conditions that are from air pollution, right? That are from living in Cancer Alley next to these uh, plastic refineries, which is oil. Um, you know, the, I always think about like as air pollution as this 80-20 fix that we can do. Like if, if you do this one thing, if we can reduce and eliminate uh, PM2, what that does down the scale, it makes something like COVID so much less deadly than it needs to be. It makes living in a neighborhood, uh, you know, next to a highway or where school buses or post office trucks uh, so much less deadly. And each of these things pulls so many different levers and and you, uh, the the listener, are able to contribute in so many different ways. Right. And I mean, you don't have to think of all of these solutions to be about emissions. You can think of these solutions to be about people. You know, one of the biggest climate solutions is to empower women, you know, because we know that when uh, women are empowered in families, they improve the way they make families more sustainable. They bring more income. They ed- they spread more education among uh, among their uh, children, and all those things add up to a climate solution because in- eventually you are getting fewer people, but more educated, more skilled people who care about the planet to to do more right. Uh, another way to think about the climate solution challenge or climate solution uh, framework is to think about the fact that, you know, in the past 200 years when we've lived in the fossil fuel era, it's also been an era of colonialism where we've had uh, a certain set of countries become rich at the cost of a certain larger set of countries. And in the process of providing clean energy and moving technologies, at a much faster pace and making these countries be richer and cleaner, you are repaying some of that debt. You are overcoming some of the the uh, the in, uh, inequities that were created because of colonialism. And so it doesn't really have to be the lens of climate, but all of it sort of feeds into it. There's so much good to be done in the next um, few decades. I mean, it'll always be the case, but especially now. Yeah, so I, I'm... I'm pretty hopeful because there's so much to do and so much we can do that focusing on resistance and focusing on verification and doing the right thing is important, but there are just so many things to do that we can keep going for a very long time and and every little we do helps. 
I'm 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 firmly on board. Uh, and we we had a wonderful wonderful conversation a while back with uh, with Catherine Wilkinson back when she was at Drawdown about uh, how, why educating girls and family planning was at least at the time. Uh, and it's still very much like very high up on on drawdowns list of measurable impacts that you can have. And that might surprise you, but I urge you to go and listen to that conversation. And Catherine's moved on now to her excellent All We Can Save project in the book that came out last year uh, with another one of our guests, uh, Dr. Ayanna Elizabeth Johnson. And um, it matters. It, it matters uh, that that we educate women and that we bring them up and that we enable them uh, to to be able to support themselves and be in these leadership positions because we've actually never done that before, just like we've actually never opted out of colonialism. Um, but doing these things can make a, just a massive difference in the world and, and pull more of these levers. Um, so, Akshat, uh, just last couple things here, and thank you so much for your time again on uh, on this Friday. I'm sure you're ready to get out of here. Again, we'd like to get into really specific action steps that everybody can take here. So, Let's talk about what people can do with their uh, voice. What are the specific questions that we should be asking, which either side of the pond we're on, um, of our representatives, whether they're folks running for office or folks that are already in office? And, and that could be on the local level, the state level, or on the federal level to move these sort of things along. Yeah, it's a good one. I mean, I think one of the things that you can do is think about the issue that affects you most or that you're most passionate about and then pick that issue up and then take it to the different regional level, right? For example, I, I happen to luckily live next to a lake, even though I'm in London, but the lake is full of plastic pollution. And that's got something to do with climate, not always, but it's also a, a, a site of scientific interest classified as an official site of scientific interest. So on the side of being working with uh, a group of volunteers that is bringing what is six or seven agencies, uh, some national, some local, that have to work together to solve the plastic problem. Uh, it's a bit of a bureaucratic nightmare, but through that process, I realized just how complicated it is. And it's given me a new connection to my uh, neighborhood in a way that I didn't have previously. Um, and so uh, it's Im immensely rewarding. And so if you can pick up something that you can physically do, especially now with with pandemic and restrictions of not being able to see friends far away, uh, but you can go out on a walk with uh, people and and you know pick litter or or talk about organizing uh, your letters to to the to a local councillor. Those are things worth doing. Um, I also think. Most people listening to this podcast are working for companies that are that have the capital that are producing emissions that have the ability to reduce those emissions. And if you can go and ask whether your company has a climate plan or not, and if it doesn't, why it doesn't, and if it can't put a climate plan together, can you be involved? That will have an enormous difference because yes, there are problems with offsets, and yes, there are difficulties with how will you'll reduce emissions, but there are those are smaller problems than the bigger things you can address right away with with having a climate plan, with switching to renewable energy, with reducing plastic in, in offices, with not consuming as much meat in your pantries. And so there's just a ton you can do as a person. And, and I, I, I'm excited for what, what comes. Um, you know, the momentum is clearly in, in climate's favor right now, at least. 
on the solutions, if not on the on emissions. Sure, sure, sure. And 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 that's it. It's it's if if you need to be focused on on one area, it's it's look at okay, my person, my family, my company, my industry. We need to reduce emissions. What is what is my role in that? And is there more I can take on? Is it is it reporting? Is it messaging? Is it is it finance? Is it is it design? Is it logistics? Whatever it might be, I guarantee your company works on something in that respect, and you can lend those skills to that effort uh, as well. What about anything specific with their dollar? Are there groups? Um, I I'm a big fan of uh, what Carbon 180 has already started to do uh, here in the U.S. Uh, they've got some pretty intense lobbying efforts on their part, specifically around offsets. Uh, are there any other groups you believe in, uh, you support that are going a long way? If you want to maintain your journalistic integrity and not support one specific area, I'm totally fine with that too. But I don't want to leave anything out here. I want to be specific for folks. A lot of my giving goes through Kiva. Um, mm-hmm. And in Kiva, you can go and pick, pick and choose your projects, the the ones you believe in. And so you have enormous options there, from supporting agriculture to supporting, uh, you know, solar panels. You can support education. You can support uh, very specific groups. You can support refugees. You can support women. You can support older people. Uh, you can support health problems. Uh, uh, and so. Um, that I feel like is uh, one that I've found as a good platform to go to. And it's not a climate one. Um, and as a journalist, I probably will not be uh, you know, endorsing any climate groups because that's not something I should be doing anyway. Um, but uh, yeah, I mean, charity is important and we all can do a lot with our dollars and that's important. Absolutely. Um, yeah, we have this issue in the U.S. where we don't uh, we don't tax people as long as they make a certain amount of money. So charity and issues and <laughs> platforms like GoFundMe have become basically the healthcare system, for better or worse, definitely worse. But there will always be a role for philanthropy and charity on whatever level. It doesn't need to be a rough example right now, Bill Gates. Um, but platforms like Kiva are really special because climate, it is this global thing, but it is so tangible and so a part of your everyday life, whether you know it or not, and and engaging with your local lake like you talked about, or, uh, you know, a heat sink parking lot that has no trees and a red line part of town in the U.S., something like that, or something like Kiva, where you are, you are directly working with people. And like you said, you can pick any specific thing. There, there, there are few better actions to get you moving than something with such a direct connection. Uh, I appreciate that recommendation. They've been around for forever and I, I love what they've done. Um, all right, last couple of questions and we'll get you out of here. Aksha, who is someone in your life that has positively impacted your work in the past six months? Oh, my editor who's joined here in London, uh, Sharon Chen, she came from Beijing and she came during lockdown. So I actually didn't see her uh, when she joined, uh, she, she came in, I think, September, October, and I only met her for the first time in April. So, uh, but yeah, she's been an enormous help because uh, it's, um, you know, editors are just wonderful people to have in life and, and having an editor in your time zone makes a big difference as a journalist who works across time zones and has much of his team based in the U.S. Um mm-hmm. Yeah, I, that, that's absolutely helpful. And that's a, it's something I'm, I'm so curious as we see this like Substack revolution roll out and uh, there are not a lot of editors involved. And, uh, <laughs> you're seeing the power of editors for sure. 
Akshat, what's a book you've read uh, in the past year that's opened your mind to something you hadn't considered before or has changed your thinking in some way? We're, we're, we, we try to be pretty pragmatic about, uh, you know, the beginner's mind and all things like that. Um, well, I'll, I'll give you two books that I read, which are which are contradictory theses, and they made me think quite a bit. One is called "More from Less" by Andrew McAfee, um, and his thesis is capitalism will solve this problem. We have uh, used the capitalistic system to be able to bring all these benefits to the world. We just need to push it harder, of course, while reining in the crony capitalism part. And then there's another book called "Less is More." by Jason Hickel, who is the opposite, who says um, degrowth is the way that economic growth is not going to solve this problem. And here are the reasons why. And going through that debate was helpful to me. Um, I ended up writing newsletter for each of those books in last year when I read them. And I think it's a helpful exercise to go through. You may not, you may come on one side or the other, but uh, to know both sides is helpful. And that's a, that. That's a very specific one to to focus on for sure. Because boy, the um, the uh, the conversation between between growth and degrowth these days is pretty fraught, and it's not unlike crypto and energy use, for example. Uh, it's it's not pretty at times, but to me, that usually is a sign of a lack of open mindedness and uh, a willingness to at least explore the other sides fundamental tenets. Uh, right. And I mean, my... my not that you have was, to agree with them, but... Right. I mean, there was also some uh, reason to do it, which is I'm currently writing a book, which you know will come out next year. The working title for it, when I put in a proposal, was called The Existential Economy. And it's a book about climate solutions uh, and how you scale them. Uh, but when my book editor, who... Uh, read the proposal and and she came up with a different one. She said, you should call it climate capitalism because what you're really saying is here are all the solutions that are working out and here are all the challenges within the framework that we are to, to overcome, to let these solutions be their full potential. You should, you know, you are in this capitalistic system, but you're applying a climate lens to it. And I was like, wow, that's going to be controversial. <laughs> Yeah. I, I still like my existential economy neutral position, but <laughs> yeah. uh, and so I don't know which which way we'll go by the time the book is out. But uh, it was one reason for me to get into this debate and really get my head around it as well. Well, I appreciate as always your open mindedness uh, about it all, Aksha. Thank you for coming back for joining us, especially on a Friday afternoon. I, I, I sincerely appreciate it. We link to your guys' stuff and, and yours in particular uh, so often, and it is such a helpful education uh, process. It is such a helpful perspective on how quickly things are changing, but on the other hand, how so much uh, has not and and needs to. So thank you for all the work that you folks are, are doing over there, um, for well, sure. Well, thanks for having me, and thanks for keeping up with this. Uh, it's an immensely helpful resource, um, and I'm really glad to be here. For sure. Where can our listeners follow you online uh, and follow your work? So I have a Twitter, which is at Akshatrati. Um, and uh, if you are keen, you can sign up to my newsletter, which comes out on Tuesdays uh, through Bloomberg Green, which you can find both on Bloomberg.com or on LinkedIn. 
Awesome. And Bloomberg Green has this wonderful sidebar where you can just watch PPM go up. It's really great. Uh, <laughs> or terrifying. Or, ter or, or terrifying. Yeah, it's, you're going to react one of two ways, depending on how the day is going. Uh, my man, thank you so much. I really appreciate it. And uh, yeah, we'll, we'll do it again soon because, like you said, this is the work of our lifetimes. Thanks to our incredible guest today, and thanks to all of you for tuning in. We hope this episode has made your commute or awesome workout or dishwashing or fucking dog walking late at night that much more pleasant. As a reminder, please subscribe to our free email newsletter at importantnotimportant.com. It is all the news most vital to our survival as a species. And you can follow us all over the internet. You can find us on Twitter at importantnotimp. <sighs> Just so weird. Also on Facebook and Instagram at Important Not Important, Pinterest and Tumblr, the same thing. So check us out, follow us, share us, like us, you know the deal. And please subscribe to our show wherever you listen to things like this. And if you're really fucking awesome, rate us on Apple Podcasts. Keep the lights on. Thanks. Please. <laughs> and you can find the show notes from today right in your little podcast player and at our website, importantnotimportant.com. Thanks to the very awesome Tim Blaine for our jamming music, to all of you for listening, and finally, most importantly, to our moms for making us. Have a great day. Thanks, guys. <laughs>